to the mini break, your day podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, October 3rd. There's only one question to ask on today's show, and that, of course, is did the last 24 hours live up to the hype? It was a fantastic schedule for tennis fans to enjoy. You had Alcaraz versus Sinner, Medvedev versus Zverev, Sviantec, Sabalenka, Rabakina, Pagula, and others all in action in Beijing. A very fun Astana final between Corda and Manorino on the schedule as well. Certainly plenty for tennis fans to look forward to. And spoiler alert for the rest of today's show, I certainly thought everything lived up to the hype. Now, it was two straight set results on the men's side in Beijing. That, of course, is where we're going to start today's show. Oh, my God goodness, did Yannick Sinner play some tennis today on his way to a fourth career victory over world number two, Carlos Alcaraz. I want to break down that first set, talk about how Yannick Sinner was able to just sustain pressure against the world number two, why Carlos Alcaraz sort of hit himself out of today's matchup. Of course, I also want to break down Medvedev's victory over Alex Virev. Dare I say Medvedev pitched a perfect game on serve. Hard to imagine the world number three playing tennis, better tennis, excuse me, than he did in that match. We got to break both those down. We'll preview that final as well. Sinner versus Medvedev. That's certainly going to be a fun one for all of us to enjoy early tomorrow morning here on the East Coast. Again, want to break down all men's things happening in Beijing. Want to break down some of the results on the women's side as well. Now, the top seeds did manage to pull through both Sabalenka and Sviantec tested in different ways, ultimately each able to advance in straight sets. You had a couple of other seeds tested on the day who were ultimately able to pull through. Certainly a few upsets for us to get into as well. Again, plenty of Beijing talk in store for all of you tennis fans here on today's podcast. And of course, got to break down an Adrian Manorino title run, his second of the season. He comes from a set down to knock off, comes back from a set deficit, excuse me, to knock off Sepi Korda in three in Astana. It's the steadiness of the 35-year-old. That's the trait that probably stood out most in his run, not only to this title, but throughout his run in this second half of the season. He's 35 years old. He's the highest-ranked Frenchman, and he's pushing towards a new career high. It is all working for Manorino. We'll talk about how he was able to pull through against Corda and offer some final notes on the 23-year-old American as well. That's the agenda here for today's show. Now, I'm aware action's about to get underway in Shanghai. We also have a very fun North American challenger in Tiburon, a loaded draw in France, I believe, as well. We're going to save those three events for tomorrow's podcast. That's when we're going to start to dive into all of that action. Again, I'm going to focus today on Beijing and Astana here on this show, but I do want to bring another event happening at a different level of the tennis world to all of your tennis fans' attention. If you are interested 
and who the next college superstar might be that transitions successfully to the pro tennis ranks. We're going to show you the best of the best over the next five days on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Wednesday, Wednesday, excuse me, through Sunday, we will have exclusive coverage of the 2023 ITA All-American Championships. This All-American Championship is one of three premier individual events on the college calendar. You've got this, you've got Fall Nats, first week of November, which of course we'll also have on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Then, of course, you have the NCAA individual events in May, which we were fortunate enough to have on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel last season. Again, all the best of the best are going to be in action in Carry for the Women, in Tulsa for the Men. It's a simulcast for us. We'll show you each of those events. We'll show you singles. We'll show you doubles. Obviously, we'll lock in as the Rounds condense moving into the draw. We'll try to interview winners, coaches throughout the course of the day. We'll do what we do here at Crack Rackets, which is, of course, try to shine a spotlight on one of our favorite levels of the college ten- uh, of the tennis world, excuse me, the collegiate tennis level. So, again, ITA All-American coverage beginning 9 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. We'll have that Wednesday through Sunday, five days of fabulous action be sure to check it out if you want a preview of the event. I will be recording a GSP tonight. Now, whether that's released here Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, you can go check it out over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Go check out our Cracked Interviews podcast feed as well. Rajiv Ram, tournament directors for the upcoming Midland 125K. A lot of fun conversations housed there. We're locked and loaded here at Cracked Rackets. We are thoroughly prepared for the home stretch of the season. We'll hope you'll we hope you'll join us through all of it. All Americans starting Wednesday. Coverage across our Crack Rackets podcast over the next few days to make sure we are up to date on everything as it unfolds. With that said, shout out to Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. But let's get into did the last 24 hours live up to the hype? Again, I know it was a straight set match. But you're telling me if you tuned in particularly to that first set between Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz, you weren't thoroughly entertained, whether it was Alcaraz roaring out to a one-love lead, breaking Sinner immediately, whether it was the marathon first service game that, uh, excuse me, second service game that Yannick Sinner plays in the match and manages to struggle his way to an opening hold to sort of get himself in position. Of course, from there, he immediately breaks back and the match is on. And look, they traded breaks a couple of times uh, in that second, uh, in that, excuse me, opening set. I believe Alcaraz breaks Sinner right away to go back up 3-2. Sinner then breaks at love for 3-all. You had drama in this match, and part of that drama, particularly on the return of serve early when both guys were looking to find the rhythm, was how aggressively each of these guys came out as returners. And I actually think it was Yannick Sinner who set that tempo. Now, Alcaraz comes out and breaks because Alcaraz is electric. If you're not ready for his pace, if you throw in an early second serve, as Sinner did in that opening service game, he's just going to blitz you. That's what Alcaraz did to get that opening break, but... Sinner came roaring right back, and for the first three games, he was trying to take his forehand early on the rise, trying to establish his positioning on the baseline as the aggressor. He wasn't able to do it successfully. That forehand sprayed on him. I think it was four errors I counted in those opening three games. Then he found his forehand 
in that fourth game of the match. Then he slowly but surely started holding that baseline more and more confidently. He's taken returns of serve no further back than two, three feet behind the baseline. Every second serve, he's working his way inside the baseline to strike, even if that backhand return would occasionally spray on him. Sinner sustained pressure on Alcaraz so well. And again, I said this going into the match, what makes Sinner so properly suited, or I was going to say uniquely suited, but if other players are capable of doing it, it's not unique. Shout out John Bacon, my professor, freshman year of college, who says that word is improperly used because if it's unique, it has to be one of a kind. But Sinner is particularly well equipped to pressure Carlos Alcaraz, not only with the unequivocal power he has from the baseline, but how he goes about utilizing that power, how he went about holding his ground on the baseline, taking the ball a little bit early, getting that ball deep into the body of Alcaraz, regardless of which wing it was on, minimizing any sort of slice play uh, off of his racket because you know, the moment you throw in a slice to Carlos Alcaraz, it's the kiss of death. If you give him a slice, he now has time. He runs around that ball. He finds a forehand. Once he finds a forehand, as we said yesterday, you're just f***ed. And Sinner didn't let him do that. I, I can't emphasize enough how impressed I was by how few run around, you know, inside out or inside out, inside out, inside in or inside out drop shot combinations Alcaraz was really hitting throughout the course of the match. Very few. The match, again, was just not played on his terms because Sinner sustained pressure so well from the baseline. Sinner 11 of 11 at the net in set number one. Whenever he saw an opportunity, even a little bit of space created, yes, Alcaraz was still able to extend rallies three, four more shots at times with these ridiculous on-the-run bump lobs that Sinner would let drop. How could he not, given they would land four feet inside of the baseline. But then from there, Sinner's hitting another overhead. He's trying to follow that overhead in. He's trying to get back to the net, trying to assert himself well. It was the pressure that Sinner sustained on Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz got anxious. Alcaraz was not patient. Alcaraz tried to become more aggressive on his own return of serve. And that's where Sinner started to get a bit of a service rhythm in towards the end of set number one when, you know, the errors would begin to pile up for Alcaraz on that return. I thought the first set breaker was actually the sloppiest tennis we saw in set number one. Both guys missed a total of five returns throughout the course of the breaker. Again, Sinner ultimately able to pull things out in the end uh, in that breaker. I believe he takes a 7-4 scoreline, but, you know, again, was it the cleanest tennis uh, in, in that opening set tiebreak. It wasn't. What was the difference? Yannick Sinner did connect on one of his early on-the-rise backhand returns to pressure Alcaraz, get that mini break right back at the end, pull away from there. You know, then credit to Sinner. Not only does he come out, break Alcaraz right away for one love in the opening uh, game of set number two, another marathon hold from Sinner to hold for two love, another marathon hold from Sinner to hold for 3-1, and uh, I believe it was 3-1 and not for love. And, you know, again, from there, Yannick begins to pull away, and it was a credit to Sinner who really did find his rhythm in set number two. And, again, that pressure just kind of wore Alcaraz down, started to coax uncharacteristic, unforced errors out of the world number two. It's a testament to Yannick Sinner. 
the firepower he possesses, his ability to not blink in the face of power as well, his technique so pure, his ability to absorb, redirect contact, and add pace on top of that. I don't want to say unmatched, but certainly top tier. I mean, again, his ability to get outside the ball and really target that cross-court backhand so that Alcaraz doesn't have time to run around it, not center third of the court, but outer third of the court to where Alcaraz is forced to hit a compromised backhand. Center then, you know, unafraid to attack the Alcaraz forehand with pace. And as I said yesterday, I think that is a side that continues to spray for Alcaraz when pressured by elite pace on a quicker surface because that backswing can be a little bit bigger. And that's what Sinner did so well. Again, his willingness to push forward, his willingness to take bigger cuts on the return, his willingness to just be the aggressor, to win a 6-1 set against Carlos Alcaraz. You look for Carlos Alcaraz this season, who, by the way, still fewer than 10 losses overall on the year. You look at how where those losses have come. He's now 61-8. and eight. Sets he's lost this year. He lost a 6-1 set to Daniil Medvedev at the U.S. Open. Medvedev was in God form. He lost two 6-1 sets to Djokovic at Roland Garros. He was cramping in that match. He lost a 6-2 set to Sinner in the third set in Miami. So Sinner and Djokovic, that's the li- uh, and or, excuse me, Sinner, Djokovic, and Medvedev. That's the list of people who can do a 6-2 set or better against Carlos Alcaraz this season. That's an elite list to be on if you're Yannick Sinner, who, by the way, now a career 4-4 four and four. Overall, in his head-to-heads with Alcaraz, four and three in ATP tour-level matches. He's now two and two overall on the season, two and one on hard courts, and you know now into another 1,000-level final this season. Keep in mind, for Yannick Sinner wins his first 1,000-level title earlier this year in Canada. Another final in Miami, where of course he beat Alcaraz before getting knocked out by Medvedev in fairly decisive five and three fashion. It's a great bounce back for Yannick Sinner after certainly a disappointing five-set loss to Zverev in New York. It was excellent. He he took the racket. I don't want to say he took the racket out of Alcaraz's hands, but he imposed his will on Carlos Alcaraz. And as we've seen throughout the course of the year, even Novak Djokovic at times has struggled to do that. Again, Yannick Sinner, that ability to inject pace into everything he does, how easy that swing is, how pure that contact point is every time. Again, his, he's getting better as a first volleyer. He knows exactly where to go, what to do, and that is a developed skill because I can tell you two, three years ago, he did not have that. I mean, what a run for Sinner. How long have I been saying it? This will be the last time I make this point. I think the five best players in the world are very clear right now. I said, you know, again, I flipped Zverev over Sinner yesterday. But as of tomorrow, Yannick Sinner will be the number four player in the world. That'll be a new career high. And that's the correct ranking for Yannick Sinner. That's where he belongs in these rankings. Because, again, you look all year long, 48-13. and 13, He's now into his fifth final of the year, third Masters final. Of, or no, this is, I keep saying it's a Masters event. This is a 500 in Beijing. But still... Fifth final for him overall on the season. He's made 11, uh, 12 different quarterfinals as well. A Wimbledon semifinal he made second week or further at, I think it's now eight of the last nine majors. The only one that missed, of course, was this year's French Open. He's the fourth best player in the world, and he's 22 years old. Obviously, the standard that Carlos Alcaraz has set that 
to some extent, certainly Yannick Sinner is chasing. That is his number one peer that Alcaraz now has two titles and is still just 20 years old and it's winning 90% of his matches and has been world number one. I think in the fans of tennis players, it's impossible to not compare these two prospects, their trajectories, what they've accomplished. But by the standards of any 22-year-old on tour, what Yannick Sinner has accomplished is lead in the pack of your generation type stuff and the sort of things you, the, the sort of prerequisites you pile up before ultimately capturing a slam title. Again, an elite age 22 season, 48 and 13, he's now won 79% of his matches. You look at him against top 20 opponents, top 10 opponents, that's where he struggled a little bit more this year, but now 9 and 7 against the top 20, pulls even 5 and 5 against the top 10. Keep in mind, two of those wins against Carlos Alcaraz here this season, one of the most enjoyable. It's the rivalry that, in my opinion, defines the future. I've made that case before. 4-4 now overall in the career head-to-head. You imagine that number. It's going to pile up by the time things are done. You imagine they will play, hopefully, assuming both guys stay healthy, at least 30 times in their career. I mean, again, 22, 20 years old, and they're already at a fantastic victory for Sinner. For Alcaraz, it's the same story. Like, again, he hits himself into trouble. This is, you know, he's capable of doing so many magnificent things. He's so capable of imposing his will and interjecting pace and interjecting himself at any given moment within the course of a match and that spontaneity and, you know, again, that variety and that just explosiveness. That's why Carlos Alcaraz is who he is. That's why he's a generational talent, as is Sinner, by the way, but... In the case of Alcaraz, maybe a once-in-a-generation talent. He, he, this is again. He gets a little bit too slap happy. He gets a little bit too pace heavy. He gets a little bit too drawn into this sort of conflict of oh, you think you have weapons? Let me show you what I can do. Instead of trying to maybe neutralize Sinner by mixing in more drop shots, because he played that very infrequently, although it's hard to play the drop shot off of the pace of, that Yannick Sinner presents throughout the course of a rally. Plus, you don't want to give Sinner an easy attacking opportunity, particularly as he was moving forward as well as he was today. But again, high and heavy or you know maybe more backhand slice, just different things to try to upset the rhythm of Yannick Sinner, which again, he had so clearly found throughout the course of this match. Alcaraz's plan A is maybe the best plan A up there right now with Novak Djokovic in terms of plan A's on tour. First serve, first forehand, impose your will with that forehand from all aspects of the court, use your athleticism to extend rallies, ultimately just overwhelm your opponent with all things. That plan A is why he's been number one in the world and has two slams. I still think plan B, plan C, plan D, sometimes they're lacking for Carlos Alcaraz. And again, the moment he finds A, he overwhelms you. He can beat you in 20 minutes when he's that locked in. But, you know, again, for a guy who is so physically gifted, for a guy who's neutral 75% forehand and the way he's hitting the backhand right now can be so explosive, it just felt like he never found that neutral gear. He was so swing-heavy, particularly on the return of serve. There were just too many freebies offered the way of Yannick Sinner. If you give Sinner the freebies, he's going to capitalize again. Alcaraz goes up an early break. He's up another break, 3-2 had millions of break point chances throughout the course of that um of that excuse me 
both sets, really, and Sinner fighting off seven of the nine breakpoints that he faced. But again, it just felt like he had these marathon deuce games over and over again in the significant portions of the match from, we'll say, three all to Sinner pulling away for 4-1 in that second set. Alcaraz couldn't capitalize. It was just Yannick Sinner's day. Again, credit to the Sin Man. The 22-year-old Italian will be the new world number four. He's into another Masters 1,005. Excuse me. He's into a 500-level final here in Beijing, right? This is a 500-level event, but uh, again, up to world number four. And now going to get another shot at Daniil Medvedev, who's had his number thus far in his career and certainly had Alex Zverev's number today. You look at what Medvedev was able to accomplish in a 6-4, 6-3 victory, a perfect game on serve for Daniil Medvedev, who you look overall throughout the course of the match, fought off all four break points that he faced, but maybe even more impressively, you just look specifically at the service stats in this match. Uh, Medvedev, 10 service games. He lost a grand total of 13 points on serve. It's just a stark reminder that this guy is also 6'6 and has a cannon at his disposal. And when he is serving his best as he was today, eight aces, 72 first serve uh, percent of his first serves going in, you're going to have very few opportunities and you gotta and you can't give him any free looks or you can't give him any extra chances. And unfortunately for Alex Zverev, who, by the way, came into this with a seven-match win streak, still leaves Beijing back up to, or currently sitting at 10 in the world, but sitting now 7th in the points race with a 340-point lead on 8th place Hokaruna, and perhaps more importantly, a 430-point lead on Taylor Fritz. By the way, that deficit between Zverev and Rude for 9 and 10 in the rankings, now fewer than 200 points, and again, Zverev has nothing to defend. Rude has to defend two or finals points. I don't think Zverev comes out of this match feeling particularly poor because came down to like four different points throughout the course of this match. Again, there were only two breaks, one per set for Medvedev, who did an exceptional job protecting his serve. Medvedev, uh, Zverev, I believe it was in the 4-5, no, 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 excuse me. Was it the 3-4 or the 4-5 service game? It was one of the, I think it was 3-4 second set service game. Yeah, this was the one. 3-4 second set service game and 4-5. He hung three forehand volleys. It happened three distinct times. Go back, watch the match. I got up for it. I told you all I would. Couldn't help myself. That's why this mini break's coming earlier today because I'm going to be tired. I got to get ready for an early start time for the ITA All-Americans. Anyways, Zverev, who I've talked about, he's gotten a lot better as a volleyer. When he's under pressure situations, he gets nervous. He gets tight. What he does now, big first serve, serve and volleys often attack uh, tactic or try to approach whenever the first opportunity presents itself. And look, those approach shots get shaky, but he hopes his size and the totality of his attacking tennis will earn him an easy opportunity, an easy first volley for him to knife off. He hung three first volleys, and I say that term loosely because he hit fine volleys. He didn't hit great volleys. He didn't even hit good volleys. He hit fine volleys. And fine's just never going to cut it against Daniil Medvedev. So in each of those service games, particularly that 3-4-1 where Yasverev came up with a very good forehand passing shot to level things at 30-all, but then misses a shaky forehand for 30-40 and hangs a volley to get past 4-5-3. That was on that 30-40 point. It's all coming back to me now. Here we go, folks. 
three hung volleys are the difference when Daniil Medvedev's playing this well. And again, whether it was ace wide, whether it was a backhand short angle, but driven through the court. And so he had Zverev so far stretched. Medvedev, all he had to do was make the first volley, which he was knocking off with ease. I mean, Medvedev just served lights out. These were two big guys who played still physical tennis in this match, but that physicality was only exceeded by how exceptional Medvedev was behind his own serve. And again, the difference in this match, Medvedev 11 of 16 on second serve points, Zverev 6 of 13. The margins were legitimately that thin. One break per set, and Zverev did have looks to hold in each of those sets. Zverev also... Had a, a look at a breakpoint chance, hangs another. That's when the other hung volley came. It was three all, I think, in that opening set where Medvedev ultimately passes him down the line. On the set point, four five, Zverev could have played the backhand volley. He lets it go by instead. So Medvedev, that ball lands good. So Medvedev ultimately passes him on the forehand. Those were your examples, folks. Again, it eventually came back to my head. Three shots Medvedev hit. All elite. Go check the tape. This is who Daniil Medvedev has been on hard courts this season. Again, people don't talk enough about how exceptional of a hard court season he is having. We, of course, talked about it on this show yesterday. He's 59-12 and overall, by the way, just a casual 83% win percentage. He's now 42-6 and on hard courts. 88% win percentage. He's played, I believe, 11 total events on hard courts this season. He's now made the finals in seven of them. It's pretty darn good for the world number three who, in making this 500-level final, he's going to stay at world number three even if he wins the title tomorrow. Obviously, Alcaraz has a slam on his resume, so that certainly helps. But again, the list of players who win over 80% of their matches in a season is very thin. You start to include guys like Sampras, Edberg, Agassi Prime, Lendl Prime, obviously. I don't think Courier ever got there. I think he got very close, but he never quite eclipsed 80. But the point is you start to sniff in that level when you're over 80%. Now, the difference for Medvedev, he didn't ultimately capture a slam in this season. Did make a final, of course, in New York. Played elite tennis to beat Alcaraz to get there before falling short against Djokovic still. I think at 27 years old, given his struggles at the end of last year, he's answered all of those questions. He is right back and a must-have top-tier player at the start of any hardcourt event that he has entered. It's been a fantastic run for Medvedev. Played perfect tennis in reaching the final. And again, 4-3 and three match where he fought off all four break points that he faced, most of them with significant first serves. And now... You look at the final, I mean, again, Sinner versus Medvedev, two of the top five players in the world, two of the top four players in the world, if we want to be specific. What's so fascinating about that matchup is that Medvedev's 6-0 and in the career head-to-head in these ones. And, you know, again, all six have come on hard courts. Now, Sinner has gotten a set in three of the six matchups, Medvedev beating him twice this year, 5-7-6-2-6-2, indoors in Rotterdam, 5-3, outdoors in Miami, got him 6-0-6-7-7-6 at the Tour Finals in 2021, three sets Marseille 2020. There's no definitive blowouts in any of their matches. It's always pretty close because, look, Medvedev, Provide Sinner the one thing you can't give, Yannick. Give some time to get into his weapons. 
to swing through the court. Now, Sinner's pace on the backhand wing will be thoroughly enjoyed by Daniil Medvedev in a way that it wasn't by Carlos Alcaraz, who felt the need to hit through the backhand that much more and try to power his way through Sinner. You know, Medvedev's game will be a game of resilience. Medvedev will say, thank you for the power. I'm going to be 10 feet behind the baseline. I'm going to use it. I'm still going to get the ball service line or deeper. Obviously, Sinner has real pace that can pressure the Daniil Medvedev forehand. Sinner's continued progress moving forward as a volleyer to, you know, the opportunities he's going to create for himself with his attacking lanes. He will have looks at volleys to put Daniil Medvedev away, and he will put himself in a position to put those volleys away. Is he consistent enough yet, and is he confident enough with those volleys to be definitive enough to beat Daniil Medvedev in a two-out-of-three-set match? Not just singularly in a set, but a two-out-of-three-set match. I think he is. I think this was a statement victory from Yannick Sinner over Carlos Alcaraz. I I didn't want—I wanted to pick Sinner yesterday. It was on the tip of my tongue. I regretted not doing it. You could hear my hesitancy because I've always been team sinner here on this show and think, you know, again, he does have a ceiling to match Carlos Alcaraz. I don't think a a single match ceiling to match Carlos Alcaraz. I don't think he can have that sort of consistency, that physicality match in, match out yet. But I do think, again, in a single match, Yannick Sinner ceiling, as we saw, already as high as Alcaraz's. Can we see Sinner hit that ceiling one more time? I always say peak in the semifinals and coast off of that level into the finals. I think to some extent both guys have done that in this instance. Sinner's going to beat Medvedev eventually. This is the time he gets it done. Give me Sinner over Medvedev in a tight three-set match that will put just the perfect exclamation mark on what has been a fantastic 500-level men's event in Beijing. Of course, you've got 1,000-level action on the women's side in Beijing. We'll move there next because that's just the more seamless transition. Saw countless top players in the world in action. By the way, just final thought on that men's side. Medvedev, 57.4% favored, despite the fact that he's Six and zero against Medvedev, than uh, against Sinner. The numbers are saying actually, we think the Italians got a shot. Uh, obviously, Sinner not going to be winning the women's draw in Beijing. Who might win that women's draw? Well, all the top seeds still alive. Arena Sabalenka ultimately pushed, but breaks Bolter, who served for the set up five four in the first. I think she broke Bolter again, serving for the set. Uh, I believe, no, I don't think. She definitely did break Bolter serving for the set 5-4 in the second as well. 5-6, and six, the world number one, ultimately able to advance to the round of 16. Was it Sabalenka's best day? No, the errors piled up. I didn't think Sabalenka served particularly poorly. I know the double fault count, I believe, was at 5, but that's... That's fine for Arena Sablanka with how dominant she can be behind the first serve. She fought off 10 of 12 break points that she faced. I thought more impressively than anything else was how well Katie Bolter played. The fact that Bolter seemed to enjoy the pace provided by Sabalenka. She seemed to absorb it and more than anything redirected so well. She was very uh, successful behind her own first serve, behind her own first strike. Again, Katie Bolter was just having one of those days where every down the line redirect seemed, uh, down the line redirect, excuse me, redirect, redirect seemed to be landing good. It told me more about the qualifier Bolter's ceiling than it did 
Sabalenka playing poorly. By the way, Bolter, 27 years old, sitting one off her career high at 51 in the live rankings. She obviously won her first title earlier this season. Been a great year for Bolter. Sabalenka escaped, a player who was playing very, very fine tennis. That's what the best players in the world do. So Sabalenka ultimately able to advance, as was world number two, Iga Sviantek, 4-1 over Vavara Gracheva. The consistency for Sviantek's forehand has been noticeably better, even through two matches in Beijing than it was at all through her two matches in Tokyo. Gracheva played well. Gracheva's springy. Gracheva extended rallies, absorbed the topspin well that Sviantek was throwing at her, particularly at her forehand wing. But, you know, it was the totality of Iga's athleticism, the totality of her pace, her consistency, her backhand line. It just ultimately overwhelmed Gracheva. Sviantek threw four and one into the round of 16, where a date with Magda Lynette awaits for Sabalenka. She'll face the big hitting Jasmine Paolini, but you just worry the pace of Sabalenka's ball again. It will take time away from Paolini. She won't be able to get into her bag of tricks. Lynette, certainly, there's a physicality she brings to every match, but. Simply put, I just think Iga's better at everything than Magda Lynette, so I expect her to advance in that match. I expect it, both players to advance to another 1,000-level quarterfinal here in Beijing. Most notable upsets from the round. Uh, two more seeds knocked out, joining Petra Kvitova, who we talked about yesterday, lost to Ludmilla Samsonova. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's a breakout season for Wang Xin Yu, the now 22-year-old from China. Happy belated birthday to her, who we, of course, saw make the quarterfinals in person in Cleveland as a qualifier. She goes from there to the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, semifinals in Osaka, now knocks out Zivana Reva and Kasekina to make the round of 32 in Beijing. Kasekina just couldn't hurt her. Wang Xin Yu's forehand was by far the biggest weapon on the court. She now moves well enough to find that forehand, particularly against a Kasekina who's played such defensive tennis of late. She was able to find that forehand at will, imposed her will, continues to move forward so well. Again, she hits her backhand well when she has time. I just think when she's pressured by pace, it gets a little bit rigid on that wing. But Wang Xinyu continues to progress up the rankings. She's now up to number 31 in the world for the 22-year-old. You look at players age 22 or younger in the rankings, she's fifth highest. It's Iga 1, Coco 2, Chinwen 3, Potapova 4, Wang Xinyu 5. I mean, again, and there are three Chinese players, Chinwen, Wang Xinyu, Wang, Xin, Wang Xiyu, all 22 or younger, all inside the top 60 of the WTA rankings already. It's a real class for fans of Chinese tennis to get excited about, and it's another significant victory for Wang Xinyu, who you look overall on the season, and again, a year that's featured so many different firsts for her. Her record now against top 20 opponents this year, 2-5 and five overall on the season. She's 3-12 and 12 against the top 20 overall. Two of those wins have come this year, wins uh, in Indian Wells over ECAD, a win now over Kasekina here in Beijing. So that was, I would say, the more notable of the two upsets. Although Marta Kostyuk, 7-6-6-1 over on Jabur, pretty notable as well. Look, Jabur played last week in Ningbo. She played a pretty physical, I would say, first-round match in Beijing uh, in her victory over Ashlyn Kruger. 
Kostyuk came out swinging. You know, again, Kostyuk, who got a three-set win over Cochiretto in round number one, served particularly aggressively on this day. And yes, the double faults racked up, but she just didn't let Jabur take that return of serve early on the rise. It felt like he saw a lot of chipped returns from Jabur, and that gave Kostyuk time to, again, swing freely through her ground strokes. And as we've seen, Kostyuk not only a fluid mover who can play some defense, but very springy ground strokes as well in that Andrescu lane of can do a little bit of everything. It's a fantastic win for Marta Kostyuk and what has been an inconsistent but quietly career season for the 21-year-old who's back up to number 40 now in the live rankings with this result. You look for Kostyuk overall on the year 26-21, and 21, had struggled with late. She lost eight of her last 10. Steadies the ship here in Beijing. Wins over Kochiretto Jabur. Now a matchup with the big hitting Ludmilla Samsonova. Certainly a winnable one in the round of 16, but a tough one nevertheless as Samsonova 3-0 against Kostyuk in the career. Good win for Marta Kostyuk, who provides upset number two, uh, of course. Uh, upset number three, excuse me. Now a non-seeded upset I suppose. How about Mira Andreva, who backs up her round one upset over Krechikova with a two and one win over Pavlochenkova? Now, Pavlochenkova, semifinalist last week in Tokyo. You could argue this is as much a schedule loss as anything else, but hey, if you're the qualifier, Mira Andreva, who again had not had a ton of success since the start of, uh, since post Wimbledon, going to hold on to her top 50 spot now. She's at 49. In the live rankings, not too shabby for someone, the youngest player in the top 100, 16 years old, two and one. Again, she plays, there are times when she gets a little too passive and she has the speed. She does have the weapons, can play that high loopy ball with depth that is just frustrating to opponents. But man, if you give her time, she can turn through things as well. There's a lot to like about the 16 year old's game, two and one win. Over Pavlochenkova, obviously now she's going to face a massive step up as she'll take on Elena Rabakina, who advanced 7-5-6 love over Tatiana Maria. Maria just couldn't hurt Rabakina. It was a matter of when, not if. Rabakina would find her rhythm, and once she did again, 6-love second set. So Rabakina and Driva, fun round of 16. Winner of that faces the winner of Sabalenka Paolini. Now, as of this recording, I believe Kostyuk, uh, excuse me, Kostyuk, Sakari, and, oh no, Good. It's in the books. Maria Sakari, 4-2 and two over Linda Fruvertova. So she advances to the round of 16. So our round of 16 is now set. Let me run you through the matchups here on the women's side of things in Beijing. And oh, I guess I, I apologize. I should have mentioned some other results here before I run you through those matchups. Pagula, three sets over Blinkova. Came out a little bit shaky. The first serve just wasn't there again, but then ultimately found a result. The 6-7, 6-2, 6-1. Coco Goff got pushed. Petra Martic played consistent, pestering tennis, but again, Goff able to overcome a couple of early set deficits as well and then survive down 5-4 in the third. Martic served for the match. Goff 7-5-5-7-7-6. She ultimately advances to the round of 16. Again, tricky victories for the Americans looking to make more deep runs. Shout out Caroline Garcia, by the way, into another round of 16, 6-3 in the third. She's played much better tennis here to end her season. Now let's get into those round of 16 matchups. Sabalenka 
87% favorite over Paulini. Rabakina, 86% favorite over Mira and Deriva. You've got Pagula taking on Yelena Ostapenko. That's probably your marquee matchup. Pagula, 3-1 in the career head-to-head. Ostapenko got a withdraw in round number two, did not play particularly well in match number one against Ava Lee. But we know when Ostapenko wants to gear things up, turn to how she played at the U.S. Open for what she's capable of doing. I'm going to take Pagula to advance in that match, but she's going to have to serve better than she has because any sort of lollipop serves sent. Not that Jessica Pagula ever hits lollipops, but any sort of serve. Ostapenko can get her racket on. You're just in trouble uh, as her opponent. Samsonova-Kostyuk's a fantastic matchup on paper. Again, Samsonova's dominated the head-to-head three-love. Her pace has just been an issue for Kostyuk to deal with. That's a very fun one, though. Kudermatova versus Goff. Kudermatova coming off the Tokyo title. She's been serving lights out, playing exceptional plus-one tennis. Again, Goff has not played her best in Beijing, but she's maneuvered her way to a couple of victories. Can she find her rhythm against the Russian? We'll certainly see her forehand be tested once more, but has obviously passed the tests of late, has the U.S. Open champ. That's a marquee matchup as well. Kalinina versus Garcia. Talk about a contrast of styles. Again, Kalinina absorbs pace well, but her second serve hangs like a lollipop, and you just can't have that against Caroline Garcia. If you give her an inch, she'll take a foot. I then think Iga is going to advance pretty comfortably through Magda Lynette as well. And then how about Sakari Wang Shinyu? Shinyu's got some weapons to put Sakari under stretch. Maria Sakari's played a lot of tennis across a bunch of different countries of late. Shinyu in her home country looking for a marquee result to be the feather in the cap of a marquee season. <sighs> that would be a fun upset, wouldn't it? No, I'm taking Sakari to keep her uh, tour finals hopes alive. She's just been playing outstanding ball of late. We got to tip the cap to that in that prediction. Again, right now, your favorite, Iga Svantec, 32.8%, Goff, 21.6%, Sabalenka, 15.4%, Rabakina, 11.6%. But remember, Sabalenka, Rabakina, in the same quarter of the draw, that fact certainly impacts the tennis abstract singles forecast as of now. That said, that's where things stand in Beijing and Again, it, it's certainly looking like it's going to be a marquee championship weekend at what is certainly a 1,000-level event on the women's side this week. Again, your round of 16 now set. Last but certainly not least, let's talk about the final in Astana and the most astonishing, sorry, hadn't done it all week, had to mix it in. The most astonishing part of the Astana final is just the consistency of Adrian Manorino. I've raved about it for the last three months, but the confidence, the steadiness, the self-assuredness of Manorino in every decision that he wants to make, roll cross court, roll cross court, neutralize pace down the line, come over the top of that ball down the line, beat you to the spot with a cross court short angle, short hop the ball with a little bit of depth to just reset where things stand and keep things at neutral, force you into making an uncomfortable move. Just everything right now is so measured. He doesn't give away an inch. And look, Sebi Corda played rock solid tennis through the first 90 minutes of this match. Manorino ultimately wore him down. And look, Corda was coming off of a very physical 
mentally intense, certainly mentally stressful, given there were no breaks of serve, the concentration that requires and the sort of wear that has on a player in quarter six seven seven six seven six win over Medvedevic yesterday. But again, it was a different sort of mental stamina required the steadiness of just, again, knowing Manorino is going to give you no easy opportunity to attack, knowing how thin those margins on down-the-line redirects have to be with Manorino, knowing that the heavier the topspin, the more pace you provide him, the more he can bunt through things. It ultimately wore Sebi Korda down. And again, Korda 22-13 and 13 overall on the year, sitting at 26 in the live rankings, one off his career high. He's up to 30th in the points race. Semifinals are further in three of his last four events. He has refound his rhythm heading into the 1,000 level action in Shanghai, where you just do wonder how much gas will he have in the tank, hopefully a full tank, uh, as he begins his event there. Look, Manorino's headed to Shanghai as well. And for Adrian Manorino, one spot off his career high. Now he's 23 in the rankings. He's 27 points behind Nicolas Yari for regaining that 22 spot. He's 24th in the points race. Again, he's the highest ranked Frenchman. He currently leads Hugo Umber by what? Uh, about 300 points. He's ahead of Hugo Umber in the points race by a uh, significant no, about 300 points in the points race as well. He's top ranked Frenchman in the world. He's 35 years old. He is having a career season. More ATP victories this year than any prior year of his career. And maybe it's just the confidence. He shaves his head. He knows exactly who he is now. Notice how I snuck in that shaved his head detail. I'm remarkably impressed by Adrian Manorino, who is just exactly who he is. And he's going to make you work. And you have to do something exceptional on any given day to beat him. And on this given day, Quarter just was not able to sustain that level long enough to compete uh, with the steadiness of the 35-year-old. So again, a tip of the cap to Manorino drops two sets on his way to the title in Astana. It's his second title of the season. Of course, his other coming in Newport back in July. You look for him tour level overall. It's his fourth title of his career. Then Bosch 2019, Winston-Salem 2022, Newport and Astana here in 2023. So... Congratulations to the 35-year-old Frenchman, again, back into the top 25 of the world rankings. That said, did the last 24 hours live up to the hype? I certainly think so, and I think we're going to have a really fun 24 to, dare I say, 100 hours ahead. Not only do you have Sinner Medvedev in the Beijing final, not only do you have countless top players in the world entering the round of 16 on the women's side in Beijing, we've got the ITA All-Americans starting tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern time on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Who might the best college tennis players in the world be right now? Which players might be the next to make that successful transition to the pro ranks? Come find out alongside of us as we watch all of the top players in the world do battle in top players in the world, top players in college do battle in both Cary, North Carolina and Tulsa on our YouTube channel over the next five days. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has a f- of an ending job to do day in, day out and makes all of our content broadcast podcasts or otherwise possible. Shout out to the effort he does. That's why you got to tune in as well. He just 
produces tennis better than anyone I know. So I know certainly all of you tennis fans listening here today will enjoy it. With that said, of course, we will be back tomorrow with more thoughts on everything unfolding in the tennis world. Of course, a shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point before we leave for their support, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Danny Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.